I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. This week it's the turn of Claude McKay's poetry collection Harlem Shadows, which played an essential role in ushering in the Harlem Renaissance, a part of the 1922 story that has been much too readily overlooked. And so to discuss Harlem Shadows in the context of the Harlem Renaissance and McKay's extraordinary life and work, we're delighted to present the poet Raymond Antrobus, the novelist Paul Mendes, in conversation with the critic and LRB regular Kevin Okoth. Over to you, Kevin. All right. So I think we'll start off with a reading first, and Paul will read us um, America. Um, it's a poem from 1921. So over to you, Paul. America. Although she feeds me bread of bitterness and sinks into my throat her tiger's tooth, stealing my breath of life, I will confess I love this cultured hell that tests my youth. Her vigor flows like tides into my blood, giving me strength erect against her hate. Her bigness sweeps my being like a flood. Yet as a rebel fronts a king in state, I stand within her walls with not a shred of terror, malice, not a word of jeer. Darkly I gaze into the days ahead and see her might and granite wonders there beneath the touch of time's unerring hand like priceless treasures sinking in the sand. Thank you, Paul. So I think this is partly maybe just to start the conversation. This is a really, really interesting poem because it's kind of um, quite soon uh, of um, the kind of poetry that Claude McKay has in this collection. It's kind of very traditional in form and very, but quite radical in its content, I think. Um, there's something in there about what I'd like both of you to kind of maybe, if you have anything to say about that, I think it is like a very interesting kind of, the idea of kind of this new country and coming into this new, very hostile country, because this is kind of very much written uh, when McKay was kind of starting to leave America a little bit more, and he'd kind of gone to, um, to England for a bit and then come back, but was about to leave for a very long time again. And I think it's almost a poem that exemplifies his very, very complicated relationship with America, mm -hmm. that kind of then America later becomes this place that kind of exists in his fiction, exists in his poetry, mm -hmm. um, but kind of isn't a real, or kind of he doesn't really like returning there, or he only returns much later. But I think um, what I'd like maybe both of you to chat about, if, you, if you'd like to, is just that very, very kind of complicated relationship um, that uh, kind of first-generation immigrant might have, because, um, you know, maybe through your work, um, you kind of about your father, for example, 
um, or through your novel um, and kind of the intergenerational saga that you tell there. So if, if you have anything to, uh, that you'd like to say about that. Yeah, I mean, there, there are so many kind of personal ways into this poem and to Claude McKay as a figure. I think I, as a reader of him, have projected a lot of my own story, my own history onto him. You know, like there were so many kind of interesting intersections. Like uh, my dad went to, um, he was meant to go to America, but ended up in England, mm -hmm. you know, in a, in a similar way to Claude McKay was almost, you know, in England and in America, you know, where was he going to go? All of that kind of stuff. Um, I lived in America uh, at one point and even, you know, feel that is still uh, some of the some of the subtle criticism of America in this poem is still feels true. There's a kind of um, toxic striving mm -hmm. of like turbocharged capitalism that's in it, and that's kind of in the pretty formulaic uh, language of the poem. Um, you know, it speaks to the hustle, the and the kind of attempt to flow with it. And I think that that, you know, I, I get interested in when one is a, is a poet as well as a novelist or a prose writer. I'm like, what, why do you turn to the poem at this point? Yeah. And why do you turn to the form of a novel at that point? Mm -hmm. You know, and I feel like there's something particular in this poem um, at the time it's written as well about, like, I guess, the, uh, I don't know, the harshness of the culture that you're coming into, as mm. well as the kind of, you know, we've been to Jamaica, like that's not front, like Jamaica is like, oh yeah, okay, <laughs> sorry, my bad. Like Jamaica has its own kind of, <laughs> kind of harshness to it, if mm. I'm honest. You know what I mean? It's not a place where I personally felt like I could strive. Um, I, you know, and that's a kind of ongoing thing. I'm not making a statement, I'm just saying that's how I felt at that time. And that's what I think maybe propelled uh, Claude McKay to write this poem about America because it's about it's so visceral and it's feeling. And in poems, you don't have to commit to this kind of timeless statement. It can be like, in this moment, this is true. And this is what I am going to try and articulate and, and, and flow with. Mm. Um, I mean, he did a lot of menial jobs mm. as well. Mm. Like he worked as a waiter on a buffet car on a train. He, um, you know, worked on the docks. He worked as a Steve Dorr in Marseille, for example. Um, and picking up on what you were saying about uh, the choice between poetry and prose, um, I think he writes in his autobiography that he can compose uh, a sonnet in, on his break mm. uh, while working but he found it much more difficult and much less natural to produce a paragraph of prose. Mm. Um, and you can sort of, like when you read his novels, it does sound like a different writer at times. True. Um, because he's so kind of um, dense. And I mean, I love his novels. I mean, wonderful poetry, but I love his novels. I think that's where, yeah. like, I mean, I would say that as a novelist, but like, <laughs> <laughs> but like genuinely, like I just love you know, Banjo in particular, which I've just read, which was his second, novel yeah. Um, yeah, from 1929. Second, yeah. um, I mean, it's of its time, but a masterpiece, and everyone should read it. Um, I also think that um, McKay, I mean, he 
obviously was born in Jamaica, um, left in 1912. His first two poetry collections were also published that year and were in Jamaican dialect and sort yes. of rendered phonetically. Um, and that's like an interesting thing, like picking up on your question, um, because it's, it does show, I mean, this is a sort of glib thing to say perhaps, but like it does show the sort of authentic voice of you know, the working class Jamaicans. Yeah. I mean, he was from rural Jamaica, um, you know, up in the hills, he writes so sort of idyllically of his childhood, despite the fact that once he left, he never went back. And there are a lot of poems in this collection where he reflects back on his memories sort of being lost over time and how like he's sort of nostalgic for that idyllic childhood but then won't ever go back and that's an interesting thing he was a, he was a black queer man from jamaica we know what jamaica is responsible for at times in terms of the queer lives um that don't feel comfortable being lived there um so when i read america and picking up on what you were saying earlier um, it's almost for me an example of like colonization in reverse mm -hmm. in Louise Bennett's yeah, work, yeah. if words, um, because it takes um, a sort of quintessential English form. And let's not forget, as a colonial subject, Shakespeare, Wordsworth, mm -hmm. et al. would have been the very language. Which is precisely also what McKay was kind of trained in first in poetry, like very much so. Exactly, but sort of imbuing that form with his own deeply personal point of view and experience sort of gives this its kind of electric quality, I think. Yeah, I think there's also, I think I have the same thing with kind of like the quite constricted kind of poetic form, but there's like such a big longing for freedom through that in, within those kind of constraints of colonial society. Yeah. But I also find it particularly interesting, yeah, looking at um, kind of what you're saying, it's kind of the, and also what you were saying, right, it's when he stops almost writing poetry at one point, or like stops publishing his poetry in collections. Mm and kind of these kind of shifts in the way McKay writes and what he chooses to publish. You know, with the first kind of, um, when he was still in Jamaica, both the first collections, um, so Songs of Jamaica and Constant Ballads were basically both written in dialect Patois, um, but he stops kind of writing in Patois immediately after that as he moves to the United States and almost rejects it when people suggest that he should do it. Mm -hmm. So it's almost this very complicated relationship with this kind of what we might call the authentic kind of like Jamaican peasant experience. Yeah, he um, rejected that. Like kind of, yeah, yeah, like he kind of um, he kind of takes on the political mm. kind of identity of that, but without um, necessarily then writing in kind of in this authentic language, mm. one might say. Mm. So I really thought that was really I found that really interesting, kind of tracing those shifts in kind of McKay's work towards kind of a more novelistic form that then kind of comes later on. Mm -hmm. Do we think that If We Must Die was the kind of catalyst to that because it was published? It's part of this collection and it's probably his most famous poem, but it was written some 10 years before almost um, yeah. and became this kind of. So there were riots in American cities, race riots in 1919, and If We Must Die became the sort of, um, I guess, the anthem of um, resistance within black communities. It was the first of his poems to really sort of galvanize uh, what later became to be called African-American communities um, during times of like desperate racial strife. Yeah, and I guess like that poem wasn't it first, it wasn't even published first in a poetry magazine, it was in like a news, like a communist 
Yeah, yeah. So, so at the time he was, yeah, yeah, he was writing for, there was a communist um, publisher um, called uh, Max Eastman, so it was for his, his magazine, that's where it first appeared. So, so you think about his audience, he's writing for socially aware communists, I don't know, like, or, or, or a more general term would be uh, socialists or freedom fighters. Yeah. Um, he's very aware of the, of the, yeah, like you say, the clash struggle and the power of language in those discussions and on those kind of battlefields, as it were, language itself is this thing he's having to tussle with and his own, like you say, his colonial education, which is at odds in some ways with his lived experience and there's a way that, you know, we're trying to navigate that to speak to a moment. And I, like I say, poems are, poems have this looseness to them in that you don't have to commit to this kind of timeless, overarching, yeah. grandiose thing. Yeah, it could be just a moment. It can just be a moment. And I, I truly believe that. I think that's what entices me about the form, actually. I think it's an interesting thing, actually, because it became like almost the most universal, or like uh, seen as universal of Claude McKay's work, If We Must Die. It's the most kind of specific. And I think relating back to what you were saying about the kind of work that Claude McKay was doing at the time, so the kind of anecdote about that particular poem is he wrote it while he was working as a waiter on the Pennsylvania Railroad. So he just wrote it when he had like a little 10 minute break in between because he could just compose a poem that mm. quickly. So he kind of wrote it and the first people he kind of um, read it for were his co-workers on the railway. Um, and because it was kind of this context of racial strife and there was mass lynchings because of, uh, as a reaction to like migration from the south, basically Jim Crow South to the north, um, and they were all kind of caught up in this kind of racial strife. It's kind of um, lynchings and then counter-reaction by basically yeah. resistance by black people um, and kind of basically what is a really, really violent situation. And they were all kind of working class people caught up, working class black people caught up within that. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting because it's such a universally resonant poem, but he also says it's the first poem that he actually enjoyed reading out to people because mm. he was reading it to the audience it was intended mm. for. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting kind of fact about that poem. There's um, a, a persistent rumor that, <laughs> that during the Second World War, um, Winston Churchill quoted from If We Must Die mm -hmm. yeah, to yeah. rouse the troops yeah. I've heard that. <laughs> during yeah. a bombardment. Yeah. I've, looked, I've looked into that. Oh, sorry, continue. No, I mean, there's like, um, it's been anthologized, and there's like a footnote in like the Cambridge yeah. history of exactly. black and Asian British yeah, writing, yeah, yeah. where like, well, it, but then it says that, um, but then you go back to the main text and it says there's no actual proof that this happened. Um, but I, that would have been incredible. I believe. Yeah. I am holding on to that. Like, yeah, I, I, I choose to believe it. In yeah. fact, like my whole interest. So Claude McKay was literally one of the first poets I ever read because I had um, that poem was on uh, was on a poster on a wall um, in my you know, childhood home, and if, if we must die, it was just kind of there as a presence, and so it meant that technically, like you know, like you say, it's a sonnet, and um, by the time I got to, you know, doing poetry in English classrooms and someone says Shakespeare and sonnets, I'm one, I might have been one of the only people in that classroom that didn't like shake up, it's like, oh right. gosh, because I already had this example of this Jamaican working man, I don't know, presence that can inhabit that form, that that can belong to. I didn't have that kind of 
uh, I suppose, imaginary baggage of what poetry is and who it belongs to, and even that ambit pentameter. What, who, who gets to, you know, claim that as their as their own rhythm? Mm. And he he did that. And at times, like not, it's not all, you know, fluent. You know, there, there's difficult. Course, yeah. There's there's a difficultness. Uh, difficultness is not a word, but it is now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Difficultness. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. There's a difficultness to. Uh, you know, so a lot of it, we were just talking about this outside. We were like, mm, "Don't want to read this poem. I love it, but I just can't read it. I yeah. can't get my mouth around these turns here." It's like, okay, well, that's so interesting hearing you say that Claude McKay himself had an awareness about what could be read out loud, and and if we must die, transcended in a way the page and the sonnet form because he felt it, and you still feel it. Like the energy of the voice is really in mm. that poem. Mm. Um, I think uh, Ray also is a good moment to segue in because you were talking about your own writing and your own oh, poetry right. so yeah. if you could read us um, your poem Claude yeah McKay. sure so I got I wrote this poem called Claude McKay and um, I suppose it, the title is Claude McKay because again I see Claude McKay as a kind of entity um, when I summon him or think about him I think of um, this kind of defiance I think of the racial imagination I think of socialism, um, and I think of, <laughs> I suppose, uh, poetry, obviously. Um, so this poem is called Claude McKay because this thing happened to me, um, and I didn't know how to write about it. I didn't know if I was going to write about it. And this thing was, um, I was at this writing retreat years ago, and um, I was the only, you know, that thing, yeah, you like the only the only one in the room. That thing. Never experienced that. No. Okay, cool. Just me then. Cool. We're doing pretty well today. And there's like there's um, you know like basically I wrote this poem and the feedback I got on this poem I wrote in the workshop was um, oh you shouldn't be a poet I think you should be an actor. And when I when when I was like wait why? You you shouldn't be a poet. Yeah, so you, you shouldn't you shouldn't be a poet. You should be an athlete. Okay, thank you. And so I was like, that's well, interesting. That's interesting. Why do you say that? No, I don't, I don't know. I think that's what you should do. I mean, I remember I've been like, wow, this happened to Claude McKay a hundred years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, because it's like there is that anecdote, like it's, that very specific. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. He meets George Bernard Shaw. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. George Bernard Shaw is like, you should have been a boxer. Basically. Yeah, you know what I mean, why are you why does that man like you a poet? And it's like, okay, cool. So. I didn't, you know, suddenly it dawned on me that Claude McKay is a door into this moment to write not just, I suppose, myself, but to also write in this kind of, uh, or evoke a, not just a tradition, but a person and a, and a, and a mode. Um, and uh, this poem, it also kind of summons a little a bit of uh, Langston Hughes. Is that, in terms of the way I've written it, it's actually, uh, a lot more of a Langston Hughes kind of poem, but Claude McKay, Langston Hughes have this interesting, um, I don't know, association. Yeah. Even though they're kind of critical, they're kind of bitchy about each other, they're kind <laughs> of rivals and stuff. But actually, the, w the way that they've been remembered, anyway, is that they're like they have a kinship, which is undeniable. Um, so anyway, this is how this poem goes: Claude McKay, and it opens with a quote from George Bernard Shaw. It must be tragic for a sensitive Negro to be a poet. Why didn't you choose 
pugilism instead of poetry for a profession, George Bernard Shaw. Let me keep my fists in my pocket, fidget my ink. Let me stumble to my corner, take my stool, see who squeezes my back, grips my face. Look, the floor, is that my blood, my tooth, my island? Oh, yes, I got in snaps. <laughs> <laughs> I got in snaps. Oh, I, you have no idea how much I appreciate getting snaps in the LRB bookshop. <laughs> same, same, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry. That was just a moment. But yeah, I think um, the short quote is also like an interesting way to talk about, um, I think, Claude McKay's very, very difficult relationship also with many, many institutions, not least the publishing industry, for example, which yeah. for a long time kind of rejected a lot of his work. Yeah. And kind of, you know, the way he's kind of held today and with, you know, we have a new ed edition, you know, it's kind of, we have these big publishers bringing out Claude McKay's works, Penguin Classics, all of which were rejected at the time by mm. publishers, right? So I think it's, um, it's quite an interesting way because they kind of thought pretty much in the same way Shaw thought. Yeah. They were like, what are you trying to do here, partly? Yeah. And I think almost, um, it's interesting also in his time in Britain, for example, how that was even sometimes more extreme than in the United States mm -hmm. in terms of like a rejection from kind of the more um, mainstream publishing world because he published initially before Harlem Shadows came mm -hmm. out in the States. He published a collection of poems in the UK, mm. um, which Spring was called in Spring in New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, and you know, we've spoken now about um, If We Must Die, um, and that poem, for example, was uh, by the editor who refused to include it. Mm. Um, and another poem, uh, Harlem Shadows, was also kind of, which is one of Claude McKay's biggest poems, um, was also rejected. So it's kind of this collection, and I think it kind of speaks a lot to what you were saying. It's like, it's not allowing him to be the kind of poet that he would like to be, mm -hmm. um, and kind of the constraints facing poets and novelists kind of trying to work within those constraints. Mm -hmm. Um, and I found that really, and I find Claude McKay just like such an interesting early example of, I think, a lot of the struggles novelists, young black novelists yeah, or young yeah. black poets might be going through at the time mm -hmm. in terms of like which parts of their work can they present oh, and how political can the parts of their work exactly. be that they present. Exactly. There's this weird thing that I think is still spoken about today as if like, I've, I've, I've heard many black writers be written off by journalists who would be like, no, nah, they're, not, they're not artists, they're campaigners. They're not artists, they're politicians, you know, mm. or, some, or something. And it's like, wait. Activists, yeah. Activists, yeah. And, that, and, and that's a kind of way to uh, dismiss any kind of, kind of literary merit to what it is that they offer. I always find that such a strange uh, binary. But I mean, even in the, if you read that, the intro to Heart mm -hmm. of Shadows, he kind of preempts so much of his own, yeah, that this kind yeah. of cage, I suppose, that he's in, or that he feels that he's himself is, that he's in, is like, before you read these poems, I just want you to know, this is what I'm going for, this is something about my background, like the biography is clearly important, and there's this other thing about, you know, in poetry anyway, people will often talk about, oh, the biography of the writer, of the poet, shouldn't be a significant thing, mm -hmm. you know, the work needs to stand up on its own, um, and that, you know, we can contest that, we can sit and con contest that, but I think for Claude McKay, I think his his identity, you almost can't fully appreciate him without understanding 
what his struggle was, and, you know, even you know other things, the other kind of writings he did, like you know, communist writings, his time with Sylvia Pankhurst, mm -hmm. his time with um, uh, you know even meeting like Langston Hughes and Dubois uh, to like I don't know, just so. There's many one line in his autobiography where he says um, something like, uh, "My poetry wasn't making any money, so I had to get a job." Then I met Paul Robeson, and I'm just yeah. like, "Dude, like, <laughs> you, you had the life. Yeah. You had the life." But at the same time, like, you know, he was he was. I mean, we know of him as like almost a legendary figure, mm -hmm. but like he had no money in his life, yeah, like, yeah. and. We know that poetry doesn't necessarily make money, so like <laughs> no, you know, it's certainly that. not in the early twentieth century. Yeah, and you know what you just reminded me of was um, so he was in London, sort of nineteen twenty-ish. Spring of New Hampshire came out in nineteen twenty. Um, he was writing for Dreadnought, which was Sylvia Pankhurst's um, sort of literary magazine, I guess mm -hmm. was it political journal. It, it was like a political political like a paper, right? Um, having worked at like the Liberator in New York discovered, discovered, but like was the first person to publish E.E. E. Cummings' poems, for example. Um, so, like he was, you know, a gifted figure, like someone of importance. Um, but you know, and we talk about you know the Windrush generation, for example, post nineteen forty eight. We talk about no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. That's kind of like you know almost metonymic of that. But that's exactly what he faced in 1920 in London. He hated London. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, he hated London um, because it was. And after his experience in London, where he was rejected time and time and time again um, by uh, English people who had signs in their windows saying "rooms for rent," and then as soon as he knocked on the door, they were like, "Oh no, they've all gone." Um, he ended up living with a, a French family at one point, an Italian family, a German family, just everyone but British. Um, so you've always got, and this is something that we could probably talk about like today, like there's always this, you know, as writers, we are sort of privileged in certain arenas, but as soon as you step out onto the street, it's, it's something different altogether. So, you know, he was very much aware of that and you know, for me, it's kind of amazing that he wasn't more explicit in his, like, spleen. You know, he was always very subtle, always very, like, good-humoured. Um, when you read his autobiography, he never cusses anyone out. But I want to read a biography yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where he's not sort of, like, you know, editing himself. Yeah. You know, it's because, like, he went through things that... He, like, he was a pioneer of... You know, I mean, he was here even before CLR James, yeah. Yeah. Una Marson, and that group. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, for me, he's, he's, he's that guy. He's that guy. Yeah, just interestingly also, like, I think you get a lot in, like, a, when you come across some of the letters, the mm -hmm. personal letters to people, that's where it comes out. Right, really? <laughs> okay, I need yeah, to Yeah, yeah, I think Claude McKay is, like, underratedly, like, very, very vicious when he Okay, to, I want to um, see, I want <laughs> all the tea. <laughs> all of it. But, yeah, I'm thinking um, maybe um, we could have another poem. And, um, Paul, you wanted to read The White City, right? Yeah. Um, so... 
this is probably my favorite poem in the collection. Um, and when we talk about like spleen and tea, this is probably the, you know, the one where I kind of feel like he's actually being really honest and really sort of um, direct, if you like. Um, I will not toy with it, nor bend an inch. Deep in the secret chambers of my heart, I muse my lifelong hate. And without flinch, I bear it nobly as I live my part. My being would be a skeleton, a shell, if this dark passion that fills my every mood and makes my heaven in the white world's hell did not forever feed me vital blood. I see the mighty city through a mist, the strident trains that speed the goaded mass, the poles and spires and towers vapor kissed, the fortressed port through which the great ships pass, the tides, the wharves, the dens I contemplate are sweet like wanton loves because I hate. I didn't write that, so that's <laughs> <laughs> But you read it brilliantly. Yeah. Um, could, you, could you tell us maybe a little bit about why this is the poem you, that kind of, that you were drawn to? Um, it's just so kind of consistently, like, you could just feel how kind of coiled he was. And I have no idea, like, when particularly it was written. But by this point, he'd, you know, he'd lived in London, um, he'd worked in New York, you know, he was part of, like, he was both part of and sort of um, slightly distanced from the Harlem scene in general. Um, he certainly wasn't part of the Harlem elite, even though he was, um, you know, an associate of Du Bois, Du Bois, people pronounce it differently. Um, but he was never, the white press loved him but the Negro press, as it was called, um, didn't ever really take him to heart, apart from If We Must Die itself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if we think about this period, um, you know, the early 20th, early 20th century in the United States, the Northern United States, you know, the Great Migration is in full swing. Um, slavery was only officially ended in the last 50 years. Um, and you've got all kinds of schools of black thought happening. You know, you've got black nationalism, you've got um, the assimilation movement, you've got uh, the black internationalism movement, da 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 da. Um, and obviously it's a really exciting time because everyone's really debating like, how do we move forward as black people now? Like, and he was very much at the center of that. And you can just feel that inattention. Perhaps like that conversation was happening inside of him. Yeah. And when you sort of move forward maybe ten years to the to, to his writing Banjo, which came out in nineteen twenty nine. So Banjo is set in Marseille, um, and it's set among um, the sailors and Steve Dawes and working class men of African descent. 
in, in, in Marseille at that time. So you've got people from Senegal, from Mali, from um, Somalia, and from all over the Caribbean as well. Um, you've got French-born black people. You've got North African black people. And it, the subtitle of the novel is A Novel With No Plot. But what actually happens in the novel is you've got all of these conversations that were happening in Harlem and other sort of um, majority black parts uh, of the West. Um, you've got all those conversations happening amongst the sailors and stevedores in Marseille. So in one book, you've got this kind of incredible like internationalist viewpoint of blackness and all of these arguments happening. Um, but I really feel like that could be distilled into this poem in mm -hmm. terms of what is it to be a black person living anywhere, never mind in a white majority place. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's also, um, thanks for bringing up Banjo as well, um, because I think it kind of raises a point that I find very interesting about Claude McKay's work as well. I think now as the kind of resurgence of interest in his work has kind of come in the last couple of years, I keep on reading this phrase ahead of his time, but I think when we consider kind of some of the new years he was in, he's just very much of his time. It's mm. just a conversation sure. that was going on um, outside of the eyes who whomever was responsible for defining ways of the time. Right, exactly. Let's so be honest, I, some of these poems read that there. 200 years ago rather than 100 years ago. It was, sorry, some of, the, some of the poems do in a way. Like, there's yeah. a kind of harking back to time before him. I don't see him as a, I, I actually read him as a very nostalgic writer. Right, yeah, yeah. Right? Absolutely, yeah. A lot of the poems are about, like, missing Jamaica. And, mm -hmm. you know, just like, knowing what time of year a certain tree is supposed to bloom. And, you know, just kind of testing his memory to see if he does yeah, remember yeah. it. And, like, if he remembers the smells and, you know, the tastes of certain uh, fruits and herbs that, like, he's not getting um, wherever he is. I mean, he lived everywhere. Like, you know, we haven't even touched on his time in Russia. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. which I think, yeah, yeah, best of mentioning it's, I, I think, so Claude McKay was one of the first black people to go to Soviet Russia. Um, he and was, was embraced. He was massively and embraced. Was in, and was really celebrated there, yeah. um, kind of wrote a short book in Russian on the situation of black people in the United States basically influenced Trotsky's ideas on the, on the Negro question. Um, that's much of just McKay. Um, but yeah, kind of then later in life became disillusioned with, um, with communism. Um, I mean, it's very hard to sum up the life and then kind of increasingly distanced himself from it. But I think those achievements kind of, or those historical circumstances in going to the Soviet Union at that time and being a black man speaking, and being a black communist at that time, um, basically speaking on the situation of black people in the United States um, to, the, to the common turn. What I mean, that's a, that? I think that was, he, was, he went in 21? 22, 22, 22 so, right? Um, yeah. As soon as this so came out in 22, he disappeared to Russia. And in his uh, autobiography, he makes it sound as if, because like, he married um, at quite a young age, apparently. Yeah, yeah, in, Jam in Jam I think, uh, no, not in Jamaica, but um, childhood sweetheart from Jamaica. So, and they've been estranged from each other for a number of years. Um, and so he's in some like bistro in Harlem um, and she walks in. And then in the next paragraph, he's like, I need to leave the country. <laughs> like, and then he goes to Russia. I'm like, that's like quite a long way to go to get rid of like, your spouse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. I think it's, it's one of those, again, an interesting thing that's often, you know, it's just in life and work that's so multifaceted and interesting. 
I think it's also like there's a new biography that's just came out, and I think uh, by Winston James, and I kind of he makes this very very um, concerted point about basically Claude McKay the feminist, but then when you kind of look at a lot of the situations that he kind of put some people in, you're like, well. <laughs> yeah, no. it's a bit of a reach for me, but like I haven't read the book, so like I'll reserve judgment. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of about the historical debates about Claude McKay yeah. in terms of like yeah, critical assessment of um, both his character and his work. Um, but it's interesting what you were saying earlier downstairs about his great respect for Sylvia Pankhurst, for mm -hmm. example. Like you know, as much as he was, I mean, he he used a lot of the language of the time in talking about lots of different things. Um, you know, there's moments in his biography where he refers to someone's wife as being a good wife and things like that that we would today look at and think, yeah, not great. But, um, you know, he was writing 100 years ago, literally. Um, so we have to be mindful of that. But, you know, there's no reason for me to say that he wasn't a feminist of his, of his time. Yeah, I mean, I think even in the title poem, Harlem Shadows, there's an argument that could be made for, I guess, the women, the women, the prostitutes are uh, spoken about in the poems are kind of tropes. You know, it's, it's written in this quite, um, there's a kind of male grandioseness to the voice of these kind of, you know, even though he's witnessing these women and these slippered feet and there's a kind of, I know man, it made me think of so many other, uh, I don't know, even in Jamaican culture, these, you know, the Rose Hall, Myth and that's kind of you know don't trust women. There's a few moments in in the in the in the poems uh, across the collection where you're like, ah, oh, you're kind of buying into this. Don't trust women because they will turn around and. Mm -hmm. But yeah. yeah, but sometimes I think it's also yeah. Then it kind of weaves into like almost being a stylistic choice. Of kind exactly. Of being the like a lot of the poems in the collection are kind of well. There's a lot of poems that are nostalgic about um, Jamaica. But then that's always kind of the rural, rural idyllic kind of Jamaican countryside yeah. life is always juxtaposed with the harshness of the city, yeah. particularly New York and particularly Harlem. So it's kind of almost making this, yeah, I think, but that's where kind of a lot of these moments come out yeah. when it's kind of in these kind of like city poems because he's almost trying to grapple with the harshness of the city mm. and kind of keeps on one poem longingly looking back to Jamaica and talking about particular flowers or, you know, also his mother who passed away or things, things like that. And then the next poem, he's kind of just in kind of some dive bar. Yeah. Watching. It's kind of, so it's always the juxtaposition of those two things. And I think, but interestingly, I feel like, I don't know how you feel like that reading some of the poems. I don't think he elevates one necessarily above the other. No, no, no. I, I mean, I, so a poem like Harlem Shadows, for example, makes me think of the poet Gwendolyn Brooks mm -hmm. and her poem, um, Gay Chaps at the Bar, mm -hmm. which is written in this very similar kind of, I know, emotional, sociological, observant, like, you know, poet on the periphery, observing life and trying to infuse the language with the life that is happening before them. Um, and, you know, again, the key word in this is shadows, the life in the shadows, right? So in Gay Chaps at the Bar, we got queer people, not even just gay men, they're queer people in uh, in a gay bar. I mean, in Harlem Shadows, we've got, uh, well, all the prostitutes in this poem are women. But it's still this idea of like, you know, that life at this corner, life in this shadow. And I feel like Claude McKay, perhaps, you know, like I say, like gave a kind of DNA to that kind of poem or contributed to the, the traditions. Because mm -hmm. so many, poets, not just black poets, but poets who have some kind of 
social awareness, social consciousness is something that they're trying to write into. Um, you know, I mean, even George Bernard Shaw, I mean, not a poet, but still like a sociologist. And I'm interested in that intersection between poetry and sociology. Mm -hmm. I think Claude McKay uh, and you know, poets who came a bit later, like Gwendolyn Brooks. Gwendolyn Brooks is a great um, poet to contrast the work with, I think, if you're looking for um, someone who is, you know, just a bit later than Claude McKay. Yeah, I think that's a, a super interesting connection you make also in terms of um, the sociological and the, and the poetry, because one of his final books, for example, is a, is a sociological study that he didn't quite finish, but he kind of went into the realm of basically writing sociology towards mm -hmm. like later in life, um, just necessitated by different grants that he got to do different types of projects. But I think that was kind of always very much evident in his work, is this kind of sociological understanding of Harlem as a place, or this sociolo almost sociological understanding of like, then when he lived in Marseille, of Marseille as a place and taking it very much in its entirety at face value and kind of trying to understand the place as it is. Mm -hmm. yeah, if, I, if I may ask you a question about your own mm -hmm. work, uh, is, that, is that something you also have try and do in your own work? Because um, just in terms of um, kind of where you come from, if you can tell, yeah. So in terms of, uh, yeah, um, well, I, like the idea of giving everyone their own voice. Um, and I love, there's a quote in um, Banjo attributed to the character Ray, who's kind of the avatar, I suppose, of um, McKay in that novel. I um, write for those who can stand a good story, no matter where it comes from, or no matter its source, something like that. Which, I wish I'd had that like to hand when my book first came out because <laughs> I think that's like a really good um, place to start from in terms of like when people ask you about audience and whatever um, because you know there are so many conversations um, that are sort of very localized and don't end up sort of being joined together so yeah. um, like what I was saying earlier about um, the community in Banjo, like you've got people, black people from all sort of corners of the diaspora, all in one place, um, all of like a similar social class, um, all having these conversations about what it means to be a black person, what it should mean in the future to be a black person, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think even to this day, like there are certain sort of dominant modes in the conversation, um, you know, naturally, you know, America dominates the English mm -hmm. language, so African-Americans are dom gonna dominate <laughs> a lot of the conversation when it comes to what right. it means to be black. So, um, and that's fine, like we can ride on their coattails, but we also need to sort of like ask ourselves like where our intersections also are. Um, and so, you know, and then sort of bringing like, you know, elements of queerness, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, I try to do that a lot in my work. Um, yeah, just always kind of constantly be asking, like, this is one perspective, you know, what are the other sort of, uh, what are the other variables that I'm not thinking about? Yeah, and I guess to that, I wanna say that, like, people talk so much about Claude McKay in the context of the Harlem Renaissance, but actually yeah. he's so much more elusive and complicated and generous than just this kind of place and this time 
And I think it's been canonized as that for the sake of like simplifying and packaging. It's a PR move yeah. rather than about the actual breadth hmm. uh, of the work, you know, of a life. And that's... Well, you said it in your piece um, in the yeah. LRB reviewing um, Romance in Marseille, which is there. That I mean, um, he wasn't even in America for most of what we call the Harlem Renaissance. Um, he left in 1922. There is, the Renaissance took shape, and he didn't return to the US uh, for longer than like three months until 1934. So, like, we said that he's synonymous with that, but, you know, like, he was in Paris, like, he was turning down the opportunity to, like, <laughs> dine with Gertrude Stein at her salon, because <laughs> he was just like, she was like uh, a bit um, de trop for him. <laughs> um, he was a character. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting the way we kind of tend to oversimplify the narrative at times. Not yeah. us, but. And I think sometimes it's, yeah, when you read kind of, when you look into McKay's biography, it's like he does return in 1934, but very, very reluctantly. Mm -hmm. And I think it's only because the Great Depression has happened, or like, it's, it's happened, or like basically the economic situation is terrible. His books are not selling, and he can't get any royalty checks. So he doesn't have any money. So he's kind of basically James Weldon Johnson advises him to come back because at least there's some movement happening there that he can join. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, kind of no one. I mean, there's another theme in McKay's work that is about. I think we were briefly chatting about this. That is about isolation, yeah. um, which I find maybe yeah yeah. I don't know if you pick that up in that work as well. Sometimes yeah. it's kind of there is kind of a deep sense of isolation yeah. there at all times, and you get it in the poetry, you get oh, it in the yeah. fiction quite a lot. You could even like roots like the Afro pessimism in, in some ways. You know, if you want to talk about you know labels and movements and like what it speaks to of today and the heart back a hundred years ago. Because I think like as contemporary writers, maybe I don't know if you all feel this, but like there is a kind of um, often the way that when you see your work written about, it's like well, there's, a, there's an assumption that we don't have a tradition or a lineage. Like we just kind of come out of nowhere, just we just start writing. And it's like, well, you're you not know, understanding the, the, the traditions that we are tapping into, like the Claude McKay from the previous century. And then for me, in a way, I go back to the Caribbean poets. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, met some, we mentioned Miss Lou. And if we want to talk about here, I'm, I'm going to mention um, Lindsay Quincy Johnson mm -hmm. and, and even John Agard and Jean Vinto Breeze and James Berry. Like, there's a long list of writers on our shore, some of which are still alive, that aren't properly given the subtext and the context and the kind of generosity that I think they, they, they deserve. But as minorities, we keep having to personally discover. Yeah, we have to <laughs> personally, yeah. You know, yeah. so I never heard of Claude McKay until about three years ago. And Nadifa Mohammed, um, when I met her, she said, oh, you like Claude McKay? And I said, who? <laughs> and she was like, <laughs> so she had to explain no, to me yeah. who this Jamaican gay novelist and poet was. Right. Um, and then Romance in Marseille came out, mm -hmm. and then, you know, I sort of got further into him. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, each generation seemingly has to keep rediscovering what happened before it. Yeah. Like, um, you know, it's only now that I'm kind of really getting into the Caribbean writing of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah, Andrew Sulky. Andrew Sulky, exactly. And, you know, people say, oh, there haven't been many sort of black queer novels published mm -hmm. in the UK. Andrew Sulky, 
published, wrote and published Escape to Norton Pavement with a queer protagonist in 1960. And I had to discover that myself through mm -hmm. like digging into the archives. And like the archives are a very kind of rarefied space where not everyone um, can go to look for their identity, you know? Um, you need permission from somewhere or someone yeah. to be able to dip into that. Um, and that's not necessarily fair because obviously, you know, for various reasons, yeah, I mean, we don't always have the confidence to go and seek out yeah. our philosophies and our identities. Um, uh, actually, that leads into a question before we go into the last poem. As an educator, um, kind of, do you do you feel do you get that sense as well, or is there is there in a sense of is there a way in which you can kind of encourage that kind of process of finding these figures? Of I, you know, I I cringe at that idea that you subscribe a writer just because of one. I, you know, like oh, read this person, they're black. You know, what I mean? right? It's easy to yeah, roll yeah, your yeah, eyes yeah. at that, but like, no, man. Let me, me sidestep that. Right. So honestly, I do believe in, um, you know, in the early days anyway, allow your enthusiasm to guide you. If the work excites you, if it speaks to you, mm -hmm. if, it, if, it, if it brings you closer to this thing that we call aliveness, then honor that, follow that. There'll be a reason, a personal reason for that. I mean, as you get older, you start to realize, oh, right, these are the, re these are the things about me that I'm projecting onto these authors of these artists and these ideas and they're gonna you know be your tunnels or your avenues into you know the the deeper complicated questions that you're trying to discover and answer in which you need the lens of art to fully kind of honor the complexity of and i think that, 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 that we really don't understand the value of creativity in art and it's constantly constantly um you know, like what Rishi is saying at the moment, in you know, like trying to say that he's going to take away all the funds from uh, you know art yeah. courses and all this kind of thing, and then just just um, allow um, courses in things that generate you know wealth and all this kind of thing. Like, like this is where the true value is that you know that we can measure in terms of in terms of this. But I really believe that the kind of you know the spiritual measurement, and I and I know. That, that word needs qualifying, but I'm going to say it here in the hope that people here resonate with it and understand what I mean when I say that. Like, there's a, a real kind of soul searching that art, and I use that term, you know, to include visual literature, anything, gives you that I don't think anything else can. Like, I really do, I, I really would, you know, prescribe art to someone who didn't have any. Thank you. And um, now just to kind of read one last poem. I yeah. think we've left this one for last. It's okay. probably the most famous Claude McKay poem. Um, we've spoken about it a lot. So Ray will read <coughs> from If We Must Die. Cool. So um, what I'm going to say about this poem, obviously, is a sonnet. It's interesting that it has no volta, meaning it has no turn. And I think that that is the uh, part of the striving as it just moves forward. As it's starts here and just strives forward. Um, interestingly, I think one of the reasons why this poem is transcended is because it's one of the few poems that doesn't actually mention race. I should say one of the few angry, explicitly angry poems in which he doesn't explicitly say, I am a black man and I'm angry. 
you know? Mm -hmm. I feel like it's interesting hearing you say that he wrote it at the time when he was working. I think you can imagine the colleagues he would have had might have been Irish, they might have been uh, Indian indentured servants, they could have, you know, all of the kind of widening of um, who it was his poetry speaks to and how it can be useful, you know, to different people's struggles. I think my, because it's interesting you said that he wrote, he had to read it to these people. Mm -hmm. Is like, I want you all to see yourselves in this. So I'm just going to say, I feel you. Like, I don't know. I know. I think there's something in that. And I just want to uh, also, you know, you could call it a war poem. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that this poem is such well-tread territory. But, you know, it's just, like you say, we have to keep giving it, bringing it back. And I just want to say that recently I was in Berlin. And this is the last time, like, I thought about Claude McKay and this poem specifically. I was in Berlin at this poetry festival, and they invited poets from Ukraine, and they invited poets from Ethiopia, and they're side by side. And to the introduction to these poets, would so much time was spent talking about Ukraine. Ukraine is this, you know, in this really complicated, terrifying, position of being the underdog in this war, right? And so they bring out, yeah, so, so before they bring out the, this Ukraine poet, and they keep talking about how much we need to listen to this Ukrainian poet, we need to understand them, we need to hear them right now, it's their time. And the whole time I'm like, wait, but you're about to bring out an Ethiopian poet as well. And there's a war going on in Ethiopia mm. right now. And there was nothing said about the war in Ethiopia. Yeah. Instead it was just Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. And I thought that's like, I'm not trying to diminish one over the mm -hmm. other, but I'm saying that, again, I think through art, and I think this poem does this, the generosity and the power of a poem like this encapsulates and invites in so any underdogs anywhere, underdogs anywhere, everywhere, can take energy, can take charge, can take uh, faith and courage from this poem. So I give thanks to the giant who is called McKay, uh, I stand on his shoulders. And um, an honor to be here and share my personal passion um, about this man and his work with you and everyone here. So thank you. If we must die. <clears throat> if we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain, and even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us through though dead. O oh, kingsmen, we must meet the common foe, though far outnumbered, let us show us brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave. Like men will face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying but fighting back. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.